I've done this. Uh, this is in the Old Testament. If you'll turn to the book of Ezra, I've been reading through uh, Ezra just this last week and have just really been blessed by it. A familiar book. I mean, most of us know the account here, but in so many ways we are reminded how God's word is living and active and speaks to us in fresh ways, uh, even in, in a text that we've read many times. So I want to share uh, from Ezra chapter 7 tonight. As we, as we come to the book of Ezra, just to remind you about probably a background that's, that's pretty familiar to you, um, you'll, you'll see basically leading up to where we are in chapter 7, there's a series of wicked kings. If you go just really to the book immediately before, Second Chronicles and First Chronicles and First and Second Kings and so on, um, there's this series of wicked kings in Israel, not always, but many of them wicked and not serving the Lord, but rather serving idols and so on and leading even the populace themselves into wickedness. And this ultimately down spirals to the point where God is going to send them away into exile. Uh, well, actually, the kingdom that we're looking at tonight primarily is the southern kingdom. It was called Judah, the northern kingdom of Israel. When you think about the old United Kingdom that David and Solomon would have uh, ultimately ruled over, that, that northern kingdom fell long before. But God sort of kept this remnant. Basically, you think about the geographical area right around Jerusalem. But now, ultimately, he's going to send them. And the city of Jerusalem itself, the place of the temple, the place of the Ark of the Covenant, and all these sort of things, ultimately, even there, that's going to be destroyed, and they're going to go off into exile. And this is really hard for us to fathom. We need to be honest with ourselves here. Uh, it's, it's really difficult for Americans to fathom what that could be like of going away into exile, because none of us have ever experienced that, to my knowledge. I think we're all Americans. I'm trying to think if we had some international people, it's possible. But, but the fact is, is uh, it's been more than 200 years since we've had a hostile power on our soil. You know, we, we don't know what it's like in our lifetimes to be under occupation. We don't not, we know what it's like to be shackled and, and hauled off hundreds of miles away and have your home destroyed. Uh, I, you know, as, as a historian, I think the closest, you know, that we could do is go back to the War of 1812 uh, when Washington was burned, the British came through, burned the, the Capitol building, burned the, the president's mansion. There was no White House yet, but the presidential home. Um, and and that, that would have been a scary thing. But even then, it, they're not an occup under occupation. And ultimately, of course, we run the British off. And so even then, you know, we'd really have to go back to the 18th century to really have anything like this when we were under British occupation, many places geographically, including in the Carolinas. But so that's where they are. They're, they're prisoners in some foreign land because of their sin. And so God brings them into this place, a, a kingdom called Babylonia. And they're kind of primarily in the capital city of Babylon. Um, but but this, this captures, ultimately, the, the, the kingdom that captured them is defeated, and Persia arises. And so now they're under occupation in some foreign land that is now under occupation. So this is just not a good experience. They're not happy. That <laughs> They surely are, are at times tempted to think, has God forgotten us? You know, has God just completely abandoned us? Um, but God, in keeping his word, makes his way to, to open the door to begin to return the people to Jerusalem and to, to rebuild the temple, ultimately, to restore biblical worship, the worship that was given to them in God's law. But then they get back to Jerusalem. There's a small group that's able to go back under the Persian king, and the work stalls. 
There's these enemies that rise up around them and are going to kind of write back to the king and say, hey, you can't trust these people. They're, they're building up walls. They're actually just trying to get away from you so they can be off, away from your rule. They're going to probably rebel against you. And ultimately, they, the, the whole thing falls apart. And for about 20 years, all the work in Jerusalem stops. And they're sort of living just as squatters in this old broken city of Jerusalem. And that's kind of where we are when we get to the beginning of Ezra. All of this is feeling remarkably uncertain in their lives. But then, as we often see in the Old Testament, at an appointed time, God raised up a man named Ezra. And that's who we're reading about tonight. Ezra is raised up to lead God's people, ultimately, to do this important work back in the promised land. And he's ultimately going to be, you think about the the bigger picture of here, what is God doing? This is ultimately paving the way even for the Messiah, which is always in the background in the Old Testament. So would you look at Ezra chapter 7? Let's read it together. We'll read kind of two portions of it. Now after this, verse 1, the reign of Artaxerxes, king of Persia, Ezra, the son of Sariah, son of Azariah, son of Hilkiah, son of Shalom, son of Zadok, son of Ahitub, son of Amariah, son of Azariah, son of Merioth, son of uh, Zariah, son of Uzi, son of Buki, son of Abishua, son of Phinehas, son of Eleazar. Now these names start sounding familiar, don't they? Son of Aaron, the chief priest. Just pause there. It's tempting to skip over the genealogies, isn't it? But there's a whole lot of importance in this genealogy. If I had time, we can go through it. But just theologically remember this. God has always remembered what he's doing. He knows who his people are. They have not lost their lineage here. And ultimately, um, he's tracing himself all the way back to Aaron, the chief priest. Lots of things we could explore in the genealogies. But back to the text. This uh, Ezra, verse 6, went up from Babylonia. He was a scribe skilled in the law of Moses that the Lord, the God of Israel, had given. And the king granted him all that he asked. For the hand of the Lord, his God, was on him. Verse 7. And there went up, from, uh, went up also to Jerusalem. In the seventh year of Artaxerxes, the king, some of the people of Israel and some of the priests and Levites, the singers and the gatekeepers and the temple servants. And, and Ezra came to Jerusalem in the fifth month, which was in the seventh year of the king. For on the first day of the fifth month, he, be, he began to go up to Babylonia. And on the first day of the fifth month, he came to Jerusalem. For the good hand of his God was on him. For Ezra had set his heart to study the law of the Lord and to do it and to teach his statutes and rules in Israel. This is a copy of the letter that King Artaxerxes gave to Ezra the priest, the scribe, a man learned in matters of the commandments of the Lord, and his statutes for Israel. Now pause there, and ultimately, we're not going to read it all, but here's this sort of record, this long letter that's coming from the king of Persia, a pagan king, not a Christian king, not a a Jewish king, not following Yahweh. But if you'll skip all the way down to the bottom to verse 27, the last two verses. Blessed be the Lord, the God of our fathers, who put such a thing into, put a thing as this into the heart of the king to beautify the house of the Lord that is in Jerusalem. And who extended to me his steadfast love before the king and his counselors and before all the king's mighty officers. I took courage for the hand of the Lord my God was on me. And I gathered leading men from Israel to go up with me. 
So there's a lot that we could look at here, but I just want to look at three observations uh, from this text as we explore it together. And here's number one. First thing is that we see the hand of God's providence everywhere in this account. That's, that's the first thing that I'm taken by as I'm reading this in my quiet time in the morning this week is just how God's hand of providence is everywhere. Sometimes it's mentioned explicitly, sometimes it's not mentioned explicitly, but even when you read the book of Esther where God's name never, you know, never occurs, and you know that, ultimately what you see is that God's hand is just everywhere. It doesn't even have to be stated explicitly. It's so clearly the hand of providence. It's in the background. On one hand, we could, we could say about that the Bible, the Bible as a whole, right? That God is ultimately always working. And very often it's later that he says, by the way, I was doing this and I was doing this and I was doing that. Um, but here especially we see it in such vivid colors as we read about this story about restoration, going back, uh, redeeming what has been lost. Uh, we see that God is at work guiding all things toward his purposes. We talked about that last week, didn't we? About God's, about God's providence, the way that he's able to guide and in so many subtle ways that we're not even fully aware of very often. And this should always be a comfort to us as God's people. What in the world is God doing with COVID-19? How is there anything redeemable? How is there anything good about this? It's miserable. We've got the masks and the distancing and the, the job loss. How could anything good come from this? How could, how could anything good come from um, the tensions that we're feeling nationally? How could anything good come from things in your personal life? The fact that my spouse lost her job or that, you know, that, that I, I lost a, a loved one. How could any of this have any redemptive purpose in it? And even the mundane things in our life. How, could it, how can I have any importance? You know, I'm just a mail carrier and I just go and drop off mail. How, how is there any importance of that? Oh, well, it should be a comfort to us that God always has a purpose for placing us somewhere, for leading us through a time. Whatever it is, God is always there. And it's when we lose track of, of God's providence, of his goodness in our lives, that we often lead to worry, fear, doubt. But the Bible tells us over and over again that God never forgets us, that he is near. God led Judah, again, the southern kingdom, into exile for their sins. It's ultimately, it's not for just some random reason. It's, it's something they had done. They, they have to own their own guilt here. But, but even then, he, he promises at that moment that he's going to rescue him. He says, yes, I'm going to send you here, but in a few generations, I'm going to bring you back. You don't deserve it, but I'm going to bring you back because I'm merciful, because I've set my affections on you, and because I have a bigger purpose. And those things just over and over again, the way the scriptures reveal that to us. So that's the first part here. We see God's hand of providence everywhere. Any, any thoughts or observations on that before we move on? Any background questions? We didn't look at all the background, but I think it's fairly familiar to us, isn't it? Any thoughts? Okay. Well, let's think about where we are in the narrative here, right? We, we talk about God's promises all the time. Has By now, you know, we're 2,000 years removed from the New Testament, has do we have any lingering promises out there? Is, is, is there anything that God has promised that he has not yet fulfilled? He's coming back. Thank you, Rena. Absolutely. And that's the greatest news, right? He's come the first time. And at this point, they're thinking, when is this Messiah going to come? This, at this time, it's still sort of a vague idea. It's becoming clear. Isaiah is saying a lot. Jeremiah is saying a lot about it. Um, and eventually, it's going to become much more clear, certainly, through some of the prophets and so on. But yes, now knowing that our king is going to return, that's, that's going to be something we're going to reflect on a lot going through the Sermon on the Mount 
is that Jesus is, is, is beginning this kingdom work, that the kingdom is coming, and yet it is yet to come in its fullness. And so if God came the first time, we trust that he always fulfills his promises. And so then again, hope, peace, rest, confidence in God and his goodwill. Okay, secondly, second thing I want us to see here in this text is Ezra's dedication. Ezra was dedicated to the Lord and to the Lord's work. Look at the way that the text just stresses this. Uh, Look at verse 6. This Ezra went up from Babylonia. He was a scribe skilled in the law of Moses that the Lord, the God of Israel, had given. So we see that this is not something that he just sort of was born with. I mean, there, there is effort, there's energy going into this. To be a scribe was to be someone who knew the word of God, cover to cover, knew what, knew what to do with it, knew how to apply it. There's this great wisdom associated with that. Uh, they, they were the, the scholars of the day. So he has dedicated himself to knowing what God has said in his word. And then when you look at verse 10, just skip down a few verses there. Verse 10 is going to even take that a step further. So he's, he's gained the knowledge, but now for Ezra had set his heart to study the law of the Lord and to do it. So study, head, and to do it and to teach his statutes and rules in Israel. And so he has to understand, he has to know ultimately to be able to teach it Um, But then also he's got to live it out himself. He's not just going to be teaching things that he's not himself practicing, but to to do it. And that's actually what we're going to see as we go through the rest of Ezra, if you you would read it. Um, You see he's ultimately establishing the priesthood, he's establishing order, he's establishing knowledge of the law, and so on. It's a a powerful thing to see this. I I think back, and I'm I'm going to tell Joy now, you know, if we ever have another son, you know, he's definitely going to be Ezra, I'm just saying. Like, just what a great model here, you know. I just, we have to announce something tonight. Actually, no, I'm kidding. No. Um, I hope you're not giving a virtual Yeah, yeah. No, I brought my bicycle. No, I'm good. Uh, but there's just this powerful image here of a man who is dedicated to the Lord. There's devotion here. Uh, and then also to the Lord's work. That God, if you will send me, I will go and I will do this work. And by the way, y'all, this was not, this was not fun. There was nothing glorious about going back to this. Uh, Israel was a, you know, a wreck. We think about the city of Jerusalem. Much of it had been destroyed. The temple is destroyed. There's hostile people around them that are not happy. Because you think about this, the Jews have been gone for a few generations. Other people have moved in. And hey, you Jews think you're coming back? No, 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 no. You all go. I don't know if you've been in Babylon or wherever you've been, but this is where we live now. And so there's hostile people that are not happy that they're trying to come back. And so ultimately, that's the, the antagonists that have tried to halt their work. So this was not a fun place. There was nothing glorious about this, and yet he's dedicated to the Lord's work. Look at verse 11. One more sort of adding to that, right? This is a copy of the letter that King Artaxerxes gave to Ezra. Look how he's described. The priest, so he's a minister. The scribe, he's a learned man in in the word. A man learned in matters of the commandments of the Lord and the statutes of his statutes for Israel. And so just a wonderful picture of a man who is dedicated to the Lord's work. God knew that this is what the people needed going back. Now, there's other times that God calls certain people. Ezra's not a prophet. Very often, God would send a prophet. Ezra's not one. God might send, he raises up judges at certain times. He might raise up a king at certain times. But at this point, as they're going back into the land, they need to know God's law. They need teachers of the word. And so God is going to call him up in this way um, as as the people go back to be reestablished. 
I think the application here that strikes me so much is just the way that God delights to work through devoted servants. God delights for people to be dedicated, whatever the work is that God's called them to do, but that they would be dedicated. God takes delight in that. And and I can tell you as as one who, who studies history that when you look at all the greatest movements of God throughout history, even just, just in America, just think the last 250 years or so, you look at all the great movements of God, they're never associated with half-heartedness. Like, it's never just like you kind of have this really half-hearted church or, or denomination, and then God just sort of, you know, all of a sudden pours out a spirit. But, but you find, oh, for some reason, there's this college, you know, for instance, I think about Yale uh, in the 18th century that has this group of students that are dedicated to praying hours every day, pouring out before the Lord in prayer, and a revival happens on campus. It's not half-heartedness where God pours out his spirit in this way, but it's where he finds devotedness. We could look at the first and second great awakenings. We could look at what God has done among many others throughout history, and, and God delights to work with his servants when they are devoted. Now, I've often told young seminarians uh, that, you know, they have so much energy and excitement. I, it feels so far removed from me now. <laughs> you know, if I go back 15 years, you know, eventually sort of, you know, life catches up for you, right? And it's reality. But when you're, when you're first starting out, like it's, oh my goodness, I'm going to take over the world and God's doing so many exciting things. And, and, um, and, and so they, they talk about, I want to just be used by God. I want to be an evangelist or a counselor or a missionary, whatever it is. It's, it's all these different areas of service. I'm just, I want to be a really good deacon, fantastic. And they're, they're so excited. And often what I need to tell them is actually really simple. You really want to be used by God? Well, you need to start out by just really being devoted to the Lord. Because if you get that wrong, nothing else matters. Yeah, you could have all the skill, you could have all the head knowledge, you could have all the connections, you could be good at networking, you could be suave, you could be handsome, you could be well-spoken. But if you're not devoted to the Lord, none of it matters. Everything else is secondary. God delights to work with people who are devoted to him, not half-hearted, not doubtful, not hesitant, not lazy, but devoted. And again, this isn't just relevant for ministers, but to all of God's people, whether it's teaching Sunday school, whether it's working as an administrator in the church, you know, whatever it is God has called us to do, raising a family, you realize when you're raising kids or you're raising grandkids, that's discipleship, right? Think of all the devotion and dedication that takes. I've only got two. I mean, think about those families that have like five, six kids. I mean, you know, that's, that's a little school there. I mean, it's, you know, whatever it is God has called us to do, that we would do it to the fullest. Today, churches everywhere are taking a hard look at their ministries. And again, COVID is accelerating some things, but these things have been, you know, in the work for a long time. You know, I, I'm not, a, I'm not a guy who really puts his, you know, all this energy into statistics. And, and, but they tell us something, right? You know, you look at the number of churches that are plateaued or declining in North Carolina and, and nationwide, it, it, it can be discouraging. Even in our own county, you talk to our association, ask how many churches are growing, it's, it's a very, very small percentage. Most of us are plateaued or declining. And so it's easy to sort of go, you know, what, what is going on? What is, what is wrong here? What are, what are we missing? Oh, maybe we need more programs, or we need a, a better preacher, or we need, uh, you know, we, maybe our building. We need to make it look more modern, or maybe we need more smoke machines or better music. You know, what, what, you know depending on your church, you kind of strive for different things. Maybe we need to go back to the way we used to do things. It just depends. You know, churches, you're willing to try anything, right? Well, 
the Word of God says to us, do you want God to do a great work in your church? Well, you should begin by being devoted to the Lord and being devoted to His work. It's not that you shouldn't be wise. It's not that you shouldn't have strategies. It's not that you shouldn't think about some of those things that I just mentioned. But at the end of the day, if we're not devoted to our work, why would we expect God to do anything great among us? Really? But God delights to work among people who are devoted, who are dedicated. That's number two. Let's go on to number three. We're running out of time. The third thing that is so evidently and honestly just beautifully seen here in this text is that God's hand was upon Ezra. The text makes it this point in three verses. Look at verse 6, the same one that we looked at, but go to the bottom of verse 6. For the hand of the Lord, his God, was on him. The hand of the Lord, his God. It's very personal. This is not some distant God that he doesn't know. It is, it is the Lord, his God. This is Yahweh. Notice it's, it's small caps, L-O-R-D. It is Yahweh, his God. His hand was on him. Now go down a few verses. Look at verse 9. For the good hand of his God was on him. And so it's even emphasizing here the good hand, God's good pleasure, his good will that is on him. Now go down to the very end of the book, or a chapter. So it's like you have these bookends. These two are very close to each other. Now go to the very end of the chapter, and it says this in verse 28. I took courage. Now he's speaking in first person. This is Ezra speaking. For the hand of the Lord, my God, was on me. So what makes the difference here? Now we could talk about his responsibility, his his devotedness, and and I want to emphasize that as I just did. But when we think about explaining the extraordinary things that God is doing through Ezra, we can't do it without understanding that the hand of the Lord was on him. That is is the power that is here. It's not because Ezra is a super cool guy. It's not because he knows all the answers. Yes, he's working hard and his heart is in the right place. But God's hand is upon him. What's a good prayer for you to pray uh, for your pastor, for your Sunday school teacher, for yourself, for our church? Oh God, may your hand be upon us. If we don't have that, everything else is in vain. And so as we are devoted, as we pour into prayer, as we do these things, oh God, may your hand be upon us. As we think about the other pastors that we're praying for, for Charlie, uh, for William, for Dr. Horton, oh God, may your hand be upon these men. What we see here is God blesses them abundantly. Uh, I mean, there's several things we could look at if we had time, but just look at... uh, Verse 6, right in the middle toward the bottom of the verse. And the king granted him all that he asked. It's about resources here. The most powerful kingdom on the earth at the time, Persia, says, Ezra, whatever you need, you got it. I'm sending you back to your your hometown. Whatever you need, we'll take care of it. You come down to the very end of the chapter, closer to to verse 28, where we look and you see the same sort of thing. The, The king, again, this is a pagan king. Why is he saying this? He's saying he's praising Ezra's God. And he's saying, Ezra, I'm glad you're doing this. I want to equip you and whatever you need, you do it. And if anyone harasses you, you tell them that King Artaxerxes got your back. God blesses them abundantly. But after all, this was God's plan. God had planned this. God had set this up. He's bringing it to bear. So even going back to my first observation, God's providence is here everywhere. God holds the king. This is what the book of Daniel says, that God holds the heart of a king in his hands. Proverbs alludes to that as well. Uh, Psalms, excuse me. I know, I think Proverbs does too. 
Someone will have to fact check me on that. Now think back to when they're in exile, right? Perhaps there were times in exile when they, when they feared that God might have abandoned them. Again, it was a dark time. There, there are whole generations, two, maybe three generations, that had never even been to Jerusalem, never even been to Israel. Where are you all going back? What is this? Who is this God? Are you sure? Because I've lived here. I'm 60 years old now. Never been there. Don't know what the big deal is. You know, I'm, I'm Persian culturally by this point. You know, they could have thought that God maybe was abandoning them. But we must have confidence that God is still working things toward his purposes, as he did here. And he always does. So as we conclude, remember God's providence is perfect. God doesn't make mistakes. He doesn't have to be second-guessed. For our part, we should be dedicated to God, dedicated to his purposes, remembering what really matters in this life. The things, not the things that are temporal, not the things that are passing, but those things that are eternal and lasting. Lastly, let's pray that God's hand would be upon us in a special way. Upon our ministries, upon our workers, upon our members, that God would bless the work of this church. That even if, even if we live in a, in a time that is challenging, even if we live in a time that, that it's easy to, to be discouraged in some ways, God's power is no less today and God is no less willing. Let's be devoted. Let's pray that his hand will be upon us. Amen? Okay, let's pray together. Our God, we do thank you that your providence is perfect. We thank you, God, that you are always at work. Lord, that you are even at work through our trials. And that, that's hard for us to to think of somehow, but we think about how James says that so clearly. Lord, we think about the way that you work in our lives individually, but also, God, collectively through our church. I thank you for each one who's here tonight, Lord. I pray this word would resonate with them. God, for those who might be watching this later, Lord, I pray that you would bless them. Lord, I pray that we as a church would be devoted together. God, that our hearts would be in the right place and that, oh, Lord, you would pour out your spirit. Lord, that your hand would be upon us. In Jesus' name, amen. Amen. And God bless you all. See you Sunday.